Welcome to the Parent Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And today I'm joined by my always engaging and insightful co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hello, everyone. Lisette here. She, her, Ea. Happy to be with you again. This is episode 19, and another episode gets into the books. I know, right? I can't wait to talk to today's guest, my fellow Arizonan, Rachel Castillo. Dude, me either. So welcome again, folks, to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Lisette, this week has been a whirlwind. Let's talk about it, Stephen. What's going on? Tell me. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. So I'm driving behind this truck, and suddenly something hits my windshield. Don't know where it came from. Don't know what it was. But suddenly you see the spider veins crack crawling up on my screen. I get to my destination. We were going to breakfast. That's what it was. Nicole and I were going to breakfast. Get to breakfast. Get out of the car. And it's this horrible, horrible crack. I open up my app. I reach out to Geico. It's like $500. $500 safe flight will be out to my house on Tuesday. And I'm like, okay, that's not so bad. I'm talking to Nicole. Nicole's like, What's your deductible? I'm like, $500. She's like, you probably shouldn't put that through as a claim. It's going to mess with your insurance. You might as well just do it out of pocket if your deductible is $500. I was like, okay, cool. That makes sense. And so then I go to SafeLight. Child, to repair my windshield and recalibrate my cameras, $1,300. I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to keep that clean. But that was not how I ordered my weekend to start. Spending money (laughs) for freaking nothing. That's insane. Dude. And then to not know what hit you. Dude, that's the it part that gets It had to have been big me. for it to create such a crack. It was big because it hit like at the bottom of the windshield. So I didn't even see like where it hit until I got out of the car. But it hit at the bottom of the windshield so much so that it actually like chipped pieces of the windshield out. And what I saw the creeping up into the actual visual space was the residual effect of that that impact but yeah it sucked i'm sure it was like a rock i feel like it was like a piece of cement or something off of the truck that came in front of me because it was like it was like a handyman's truck and i feel like a piece of cement or something because he had one of those upside down wheelbarrows that you um that you mix cement in yeah in the back of the truck so i i definitely think that's what it was and yeah probably something really heavy to just like dude so annoying and mind you this is the worst time because you know these kids are going back back to school school. and they need all the Mm -hmm. things chima needed all kinds of new furniture for his apartment down in dc you know got to get train tickets to go like just whatever it was just i was not pleased at all i don't blame you that's an inconvenience none of us like yes but you know what is an inconvenience that i no longer have to suffer what Driving Fuji to school because Hobbs drives. <laughs> you Tell have no idea. It. So they started school this Monday. And typically I have been getting up at 630, making sure they get up, make sure we're out of the house by seven o'clock, dropping Fuji off, dropping Hobbs off, coming back home and then doing all that in reverse at the end of the school day. But because Hobbs is now a licensed driver and as a provisional driver, he can drive one family member and he's going like a mile to Fuji school and like less than two miles to his school. I no longer have to do that. I'm so happy. I'm happy for you. That opens up your afternoons. 
opens up everything. I can now get back to working out in the morning or just putzing around in the morning and not having to worry about anything. And soon, once they're into their school rhythm, I won't even have to be getting up at 6.30 to wake like Fuji up, essentially, because Hobbs always gets up on his own. But I won't have to worry about them running late or any of that stuff because they will be on autopilot. So I'm very, very pleased about that, to be honest. I am not a naturally early riser. Like, I feel like you're more of an early riser. I don't believe you. Because I'm up at at 6 o'clock sending you text messages, which is like 3 o'clock your time, and you be responding. Well, because I'm a late person. Because it's like 3 a.m. my time. So, like, I'm up late. And so during the pandemic, there were times when like I overslept and I would get up and Daniel was already in his Zoom classroom. And I was like, thank God I have such an <laughs> such a responsible kid. Like I just thought about it because you were like, oh, Hobbs will wake himself up. It's like so good. I was like, well, Dude. how did I turn out so lucky? <laughs> yes, we are very lucky to have responsible kids. It is it is a godsend to be perfectly honest. So something really, really insane happened the other day. I'm on a work call, something that's set up by one of my coworkers to to discuss an issue that was like problematic. We get on the call and this dude is like losing his shit on the call. He's like going off on people, cutting people off, telling people not to interrupt him. He is being a prototypical privileged white man. Was it the same dude that you were like? No. This is another okay, dude. So this is okay. a whole nother dude because you know white people go crazy in many different flavors. So this particular one didn't cotton to women challenging him. And as a result, he was talking down to them, just being super uber rude. Now, this is my first experience dealing with this dude. And so I'm like texting the person who facilitated the meeting and set it all up to be like, Handle your boy, get dude in check. He's wilding. And I'm in the in the group chat where everybody's on. I'm like, okay, let's just be respectful. Let's not interrupt people. Let's not cut people off. But this whole separate thread I'm having with the dude who facilitated me, and I was like, yo, you need to get this dude in check. I was so upset that after the meeting, I looked up dude in the directory, sent an email to his boss being like, hey, don't know if your man's was having a bad day is just especially passionate or what. However, you must know that on this call, he was completely disrespectful to two members of my team. He was completely unprofessional. He talked over people. He engaged in all the wrong behavior. And I think at the very least, he should get it talking to. But optimally, he should be apologizing to the people who he offended on that call directly, specifically my two female team members. Child. Needless to say, well, I can't even say needless to say because there was so much more fuckery that happened after that. But in the final analysis, appropriate curative steps were taken. He did apologize. And I think moving forward, this individual will not be working with this team anymore. I'm always amazed by the unprofessionalism people bring to certain spaces. Like, were the women cool, calm, collected? One was, the other was really shook, was really shaken by the fact that it happened. Wow. Yeah. You, you're you having adventures at work. Dude, I really am. and I, It's I, making for good content. I'm not going to argue, but. 
But Still. at the same time, it's like these are these are things that only in this climate am I like, oh, sure, of course this is happening. Of course this is happening because certain members of our community are feeling emboldened and at the same time they're feeling like they're under attack. And I don't yeah. know how you have it both ways. I don't I don't know how you feel yourself so much that you are saying whatever you want and doing whatever you want. And then at the same time, acting like you're the victim, acting like you're the victim of cancel culture because everyone is guided against you and white men can't do this and white men can't do that. Since when has there ever been a muzzle on white men? Tell me when that happened. Show me when I mean, that happened. Yeah, I feel like not shook by this because I feel like male aggression is just part of the lived experience of a lot of women. It's like I experienced it yesterday. I'll, I'll get into it on my part. But I mean, I think back to like even some of my like youngest moments, like having men yell at me in public spaces. Like I remember working retail and like yeah, being yelled at over things. That. And I was like, if my dad were here, he would have right. such and, a and, and is that right? reaction. <laughs> is that right? Should the criteria of another man being present be that which dictates one man's behavior like if you wouldn't do that if this woman's husband brother father was present then you shouldn't do it at all and the fact it, that you don't have the, the 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 common sense or the decency to appreciate that that's not how people should be treated in public or in private doesn't just it doesn't gel with me yeah it's something that i told jose yesterday because i had um a staffer for one of our local, well, he's not local, he's our federal representative, but um, just be vile and, and aggressive towards me. And I just kept thinking if my husband were here, he would not be talking to me in this way. And that, that I was the only one he was talking to in this way. So yeah. And that yeah. was like on the call. It was only the women that this dude was kind of losing his shit on. And I'm like, yo, that's, that's wrong. And I, and I said that to his boss, I was just like, yo, and it seemed like he had a very specific problem with the women on the call who were challenging him. And that's just not acceptable. It's just, that's just not acceptable. It's just not acceptable. Well, you'll have to keep us posted if he gets in trouble and or apologizes. I mean, it, it's an HR thing at this point. So I don't know. It's above my pay grade to know what happens, but we'll see if he remains on the team. That's something I can report back on is if he has to go someplace else. Okay. We want all the tea. Yeah, all the tea shall be spilled. Well, the last update I have for you is that the dads is planned for May 2024 in Maine. Wayne Maines, who is one of the fathers who came up with this original idea, has proposed a fishing trip on some kind of like palatial reserve kind of space individual cabins with kitchens and showers and three-day trip for i think he said it's it'll be like trout season and so he's really trying to do it like you know we get canoes we get we can get like motorboats and all kinds of stuff so it's coming coming soon to a theater near you well i don't know if it's coming to a theater because you know i don't know if if, if lucina is going to be able to film it if this is something that Dwayne Wade, our executive producer of the dads, will be interested in. But from a getting the gang together, that's the plan. May 2024, Maine for the dads part two. 
Well, I circle back with Jose because I think he was confused about the plan. Of course he's confused. <laughs> of course Chewie's confused. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just like, where do I show up? And is there a bathroom available? Yeah, well, I think he's hoping the water, he won't drink bad water or whatever happened to him. <laughs> whatever <laughs> happened to him, he will not allow it to happen to him again. He'll have a he now travels diet. with Imodium. Yeah, of, of course, of course. Course. So that that's my update. What's going on with you? Well, we are almost done closing on our house, so we will sign the title, get the keys on Thursday and Friday, which is exciting. And okay, I just got a vent. So yesterday we had a meeting set up by the ACLU with one of our representatives, Juan Cisco Mani, but he couldn't meet with us. It was his staffer. And it's because he's on the appropriations committee on the federal level. And they are proposing under the label H uh, proposal to outright ban gender affirming care for anyone who utilizes access and or Medicaid. Right. So like it's no longer we're targeting youth because we have concerns about their well-being. It's like an all-out ban for anyone of any age who would need to access care via Medicaid. So trans veterans, um, yeah, it's a whole across the thing. So I was like, fine. He, you know, Juan Cisco Manis, um, an immigrant. He immigrated from Sonora, but is a Republican, you know, worked under Ducey, all the things. And we have a, people in common. So I was like, yes, I'll go to this meeting. Um, with They asked for Daniel to come. So Daniel is with me. My best friend Russ is with me. Um, and we go in, you know, thinking it's going to be not fun. But also, like, any Republican staffers we've ever had to meet with have been pretty much like, nod, nod, okay, thank you, bye. But no, no, no. This guy was hangry. He told us he hadn't eaten all day. Just wow. gotten in from D.C. It was like a Facebook thread gone wrong. Like he literally fed all the talking points. Um, he told <laughs> oh Russ, introduced himself, gave all the things, said, you know, I'm a transgender man. His face was like, because, huh? you know, like he didn't think Russ was going to come with that. Uh, Russ was like, I transitioned 20 years ago, blah, blah, blah. You know, Daniel and I went, we gave our spiel, our intros. And then he's like, well, here's my concerns. He went into like the Dutch methodology and how they're pulling back, how Europe is pulling back on gender affirming care, how people change their minds and Russ and, and gave a response. And he's like, I mean, kids can change their mind. And he's like, he, he tells Russ, you could change your mind. And Russ was like, <laughs> Daniel was like, I will not be changing my mind. And the guy was like, but you could. And Daniel's like, I will not change my mind on who I am. And then he went into like the FDA off-label use of blockers. He wanted to get like, he got, he got mad at me because I told him, I just don't understand why you get to debate whether 2% of the population should have access to care. 
Like, I mean, this is a civil rights issue. Like all people should have access to care. Transgender people should have access to care that is private between them, their doctor and their parents or their families. It's not a one size fits all. It should be private between a trans person and their doctor. He lost his mind lost his shit, when huh? I told him how dare he. He's like, well, I know how to read. And I was like, I'm glad you know how to read. And he kept telling me he was a gay man. And so I was like, I, as a straight cis woman, should not have the right to discriminate against you because I don't believe that you are gay. Or I don't believe that gay people should have access to things, which is, I mean, it's not true, but right. like, that's but the example the I was argument. giving him. And and he's like, we're just having a spirited debate. And I told him, it's really interesting that you're being so outwardly aggressive towards me and not being aggressive towards the researcher and the two lawyers in the room. Right, right. And then he like backpedaled. And then at the end of it, he tried to like apologize, but without saying I'm sorry. And I told him, it's all right. It's cool. I said, in 20 years, people are going to look back at this debate and this moment and they're going to real and they're going to recognize that the conversations and the debates being had were completely discriminatory. Just like when we look back at the at the AIDS epidemic and we know that the debate around whether gay men should have access to care was discriminatory. And then he said nothing. Right. Because what can you say? Like, what can you say? You've behaved completely like an asshat like a complete butthole yeah the things he said were so transphobic and just like i and i kept telling him again this quote-unquote debate opens our families to violence opens our children to violence our loved ones to violence literal violence I told him I got a t I was just texting with a good friend of mine because her 14-year-old daughter was attacked by a classmate on Friday because she's trans. Like this is not normal. And then he just was like, "Well, this is a very important matter." And I told him it's only important because the Republicans have have discovered that anti-LGBTQ debates are winnable for their elections. It's a winnable yep. topic. Yep. That's I said it. that's why there were 600 anti-LGBTQIA bills proposed in 50 states across this country. And anyway, you couldn't reason with him. He just like was like, just gross. He, I was so mad. I was so mad. Dude, Daniel I'm... brought the petty. Daniel would giggle every once in a while and look at him like, uh, no. <laughs> Not true. Daniel did tell him, like, gender-affirming care is life-saving, and I am a straight-A student, and I know who I am, and I play four instruments. He didn't care. Of course he didn't, he didn't care. care. It, doesn't, it doesn't help him. That narrative then, doesn't help him. And then he's like, you're sterilizing children. And I told him, I could only have one child. I've had fertility issues my whole life. Not all bodies make babies like this idea right. and then right. i was like you know if you have children if you ever have children or if you have children he's like ma'am i'm a gay man i can't have children and then russ looked at him and he said sir i'm a trans man and i have two children like this idea like it was just a big old mess i can't even it would take a whole it would take a stiff drink and <laughs> i'm still mad i'm still heated it was a big mess
Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, I don't so like that. And 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 what's so funny is people who don't know what the fuck they're talking about spewing their ignorance at the top of their lungs. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then he said that he said that statistic data and methodology could be could be skewed into anyone's favor. So essentially science denier. Russ was like, I didn't go to school to learn how to skew and manipulate numbers. Because <laughs> no, Russ is a statistician and a researcher. Yeah, no. I mean, it was just, it was a mess. Comical is what it was. It's like, and then I, pure and comedy. then I told, yeah, and then I just told him, it's cool. I said, Cisco Mani just won this district. It's a Democratic district. So if he continues to vote, against the best interests of my family and fam and other families like us, we'll just put all of our efforts into ensuring he doesn't get reelected. That's all that really pissed him off. That's all. Um, but I mean, but that's the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Like we're not just so, going to sit idly by why you make our lives more difficult. Sorry, dude, it's not going to fly. And then I think I'm just nervous about the elections being so close. Right, like we're going into 2024 in like five months, and it's terrifying to see where we're going to be. And I have to say, in all my years of lobbying and speaking to staffers, I've never had anyone treat us in that way. And I think there's there's just been such a shift in the way politicians talk to their constituents. Even when I would meet with McSally's people, they were never hostile they were just kind of like dismissive like okay great bye um but there's like just speaking of like the white aggression you were talking about earlier it was evident in that in that meeting and i don't know where we go from here he had zero respect for us as human beings so how do you exist in just like basic community like not even value-driven community but like i live in the same city as you or i am a voter and you've completely treated me like and my child like garbage and then we're offended when i defended my child with every breath i had because my kid is sitting there having to listen to this bullshit so it was just a really interesting meeting it was a fucked up meeting And the lawyers loved it. I mean, the lawyers, (laughs) the ACLU lawyers, I feel like they thought they were in court or something because they were like, that was incredible. (laughs) And I was like, I want to slap someone. I'm saying like you all are having a good old time. I'm ready to go to fisticuffs with this dude. Seriously. Yeah, that's hard. You okay? so I was complaining about my windshield. (laughs) I mean, my windshield ain't got nothing on you. Daniel was like enemy for life i didn't even remember his name and daniel was like his name was nick he is forever our enemy (laughs) yeah like and it's it's important that you can identify them so that you can see him coming i don't want people honestly i used to be like i wish trump was never elected because then all of these bigots and racists would have never crawled out of their holes and i'm like i'd rather know they're here I I really would. I'd rather know that my enemy exists and who they are than to assume that everybody is my friend and everybody has my best interests at heart, but they're going to the ballot box and voting against me. Like, nope, I want to see you coming. I want to know you exist and I want to be able to identify you. 
full stop. So that was, you know, keep it coming. That was hard for my mom recently because I was like, when we were first looking at houses, I was very adamant that there were two places I did not want to live, like two suburbs. And my mom's like, but I know plenty of people that live in suburb A. And I tell her, there's a bunch of hater asses that live out there. And she's like, no, no, no. There's such nice people. I was like, there's such nice people who tell you that you don't talk about politics because politics doesn't make friends. But when you look at who their elected officials are and the policies that you push, you know that they voted some way for him or another. And so therefore are hater asses. And that's why they don't want to talk about politics because they that's don't want all. you to know that's all. that they would vote against you that's when all. it comes to push or shove. That's all. She was very quiet. I was like, that's, I'm not living there. Sorry. Yeah. I'm not breaking bread with nobody in that area. <laughs> yeah. Not, not finna happen. Mm-mm. Not finna happen. But Lisette, before we go too far talking about our own lives, Let's try to get to today's topic, shall we? Let's do it. All right. So a federal court in Atlanta, Georgia, blocked that state's health care ban for trans youth. However, another federal appeals court ruled on Monday that Alabama can enforce a ban outlawing the use of puberty blockers and hormones to treat transgender children. And this is the second appellate victory for gender-affirming care restrictions that have been adopted by a growing number of Republican-led states. This is so disappointing. I hadn't seen the second opinion, which is just upsetting. Did you get to see it? Are they citing Dobbs again? Yes, they're citing Dobbs again, which is is so absolutely infuriating to me because that that legal reasoning is so fundamentally flawed and illogical that you have to refer back to the historical precedent of the time in order to determine something that's happening contemporaneously. Like there were no such things as abortion pills back then. So there would have never been a jurist thinking about abortion pills. There was no such thing as freed black people back then so there would have never been an originalist thought about free people there were no voting women back then so this concept is flawed for so many reasons and it it completely ignores the fact that the framers of the constitution always intended for the document to be dynamic always intended for it to be amended and reviewed and amended and reviewed. It was never supposed to be frozen in time. And all jurists would then have to figure out what the people then were thinking as if that is somehow a sustainable way for jurisprudence to progress. And this decision now, flawed as it is, is what all of these fucking right-wing fucking judges are using to justify the fucked up shit that they're doing so now you have two opposing opinions within the same circuit yes Yes. it's frustrating it's frustrating because now you know judges in certain states don't know which way to go like which precedent do we follow and if we've decided one way do we now have to reverse ourselves based on this decision from the potentially controlling appellate court. This is going to make its way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is going to have to decide 
something that they should have decided already, but haven't. They've passed the buck. And just like the Dobbs decision, giving it to the states, now there's this, this mishmash of laws. You know, how can one state give another state full faith and credit of a law that goes against their own state precedent? It doesn't make any sense. And 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 deferring to the states is just a fool's errand. So, yeah. It's just doing what it's supposed to do, which is allowing states to discriminate against people. I mean, that's what states' rights versus federal rights is all about, right? Like, it was about allowing the enslavement of people to continue. That's what they fought for. So this idea that, like, it's not doing what it's supposed to do in itself is incorrect because that's why Republicans understand that they have to hold power over local government, over local governance. And that's why they fight so hard for smaller government because they want to be able to discriminate as they choose. It's so frustrating that people cannot discern the difference when they're voting for people at the local level. I, I really love the fact that when we had Nia here in the last episode, she kind of like called it out. She called out the fact that, and actually you and she were in this discussion together talking about how you have very well-placed, seemingly innocent members of the community showing up at these school boards, but they're very well-trained and they're well-versed in saying the right things to create controversy and to create problems at a local level. But people don't know. These people are hired guns. They're not just, you know, Nancy next door who bakes cookies for the for the school. They're people who are actually trained on fomenting discord in these local community settings. They're being radicalized and not in the progressive sense, but they're exactly. being radicalized to disrupt their local communities in order to push a religious and or conservative agenda. And do you know what's happening? What's happening are things like the killing of Laura Ann Colton in California, who was killed by Travis Ikaguchi, a 27-year-old whose social media was full of Christian-based rants in opposition to the LGBT community and abortion and people of color. This California clothing store owner and designer was killed, allegedly, for flying a pride flag outside of her business. And she was shot after this individual went on a homophobic rant against her before tearing down the flag and shooting her dead in her store. You and I had talked about this in an earlier episode because I was in Lake Arrowhead in July and I told you that I could feel the hostility. Lake Arrowhead is like a 30 minute drive down the mountain into San Bernardino. And when I tell you that I was wearing a t-shirt by, by the clothing brand Kids of Immigrants that said immigrants on it and I got dirty looks. Now imagine Jose walking around with his I love my trans kid t-shirt. I mean, the hostility some tourists had towards us or people living there had towards us was visible. And so I really need people to understand that this idea of red states, blue states, and blue states being a place where we're all going to be able to flee, hate is spreading and it's permeating online and it doesn't know state boundaries, right? It, and so, you know, we have to do better to fight back against what is happening. What is really so disturbing is the fact that people are not connecting the dots between the rhetoric and the violence. They're not connecting the dots, even though it's plain as the nose on your face. 
if you say something enough times, people are going to start believing. It's like 70% of Republicans believe that the 2020 election involves some sort of fraud and that Trump actually won. 70% of these people believe an absolute lie. And the thing is that he tried this in the courts. Like he, there's like some 40 something cases that he filed that he lost every single one. They haven't been able to provide one scintilla of evidence of fraud. And still 70% of Republicans believe him. How do you fight against that? And then on top of that, you start having the same individual say things like you got to fight like hell or you're going to lose your country. And then they storm the Capitol. They storm the Capitol. They say this person's coming after me. And then you've got judges with death threats. You can't not connect the dots. I told you about the man who drove the Phoenix resident who drove a guillotine. Like he made a guillotine, Stephen, a guillotine. I don't and understand. drove it down the highway and set it up in our state capitol. And then they set up a gallow on January 6th. Like, they set up like a gallow. Get all kinds of crazy permits just to be on the lawn. Like, how is it that nobody was watching these dudes, like, go and build, like, with, like, large-ass lumber, build it and set it up and not think, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen here. Or, like, I just think, like, somebody made a guillotine in their garage, like if I were your if I were that person's neighbor, I'd be like, there's something really fucking wrong with you. If I saw you driving down the street on the highway with a guillotine tied up to the back of your truck, as I would think that there was something severely wrong with you. And yet it was just people treated it like it was just like any old normal day. Because violence in this country has been and continues to be normalized. It, it continues to be normalized. And, and yeah. we who are just appalled by it and offended by it, who can't get used to it, are in the minority, increasingly in the minority. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. It's so crazy. So here's, here's another interesting thing. A while ago, I told you about Vanderbilt University releasing the records of over 100 transgender patients to the attorney general in Tennessee, who was supposedly investigating fraudulent billing practices of the gender clinic. Well, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has opened a civil rights investigation against Vanderbilt University for their unauthorized release of patient records. Good. It's a violation of HIPAA and FERPA. It's a violation of all the things. And now they will have hell to pay. In addition to the civil suit that's been brought, now there is this civil rights investigation and they will have to pay out of their assholes. And there will be sanctions on top of that. You people need to stop throwing transgender people under the bus and thinking you can do it with impunity because you can't. Absolutely. Absolutely. And finally, along the lines of throwing people under the bus, the Human Rights Campaign just issued a report on the impact of anti-trans legislation on the mental health and well-being of the LGBTQ plus community. And it found that in general, all of this anti-trans rhetoric in the form of legislation 
is having a detrimental impact, especially on trans people. HRC surveyed over 14,000 LGBTQ plus adults from all 50 states to really determine the impact these laws were having. And they found in state after state that it was not a positive impact. It's exhausting, Stephen. I mean, we were at the HHS meeting last week and I was telling them that, and I shared this in our last episode, but like the toll it takes on our kids and that, that Daniel has continued to like maintain his grades to do it with humor, right? Like whatever he shares with us when he's a a full blown adult about what this experience was like for him. I don't think that, that it'll ever fully like truly communicate the, the trauma of it all. Right. Cause every year Daniel has to experience it. We're already, we're in like August recess and we're already preparing for January. Like, and yesterday's meeting, I asked Daniel, I was like, are you okay? Like, you don't have to ever go back to another meeting like that again. And Daniel, <laughs> Daniel's like, I got to bring my petty. Like, it's fine. It's I, I, they need to see me and I can't. And while he's right, I, and not, you know, I will honor his feelings. I can't help as a mother to feel sad that my child has to sit there and hear someone tell demean his entire being in such a way. And so, you know, I don't know it. Like I wanted to like lunge myself across the table. I had to grab water instead because I was just, but I mean, this report, I'm sure a thousand percent right. If these were adults, I can't imagine what the kids are feeling. Yes, these were adults. And I can't imagine what the kids are feeling because invariably, you know, these types of things happening across the country being so widely reported. And then the back and forth, because so many states have now passed laws. Now you have, plaintiffs in those states and the ACLU and Lambda Legal fighting back. And then you have motion practice and then you have decisions and they're reporting those decisions. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. And sometimes the case gets heard on the merit. And, and invariably, until the Supreme Court renders a decision that then allows this whole slate of hateful laws to be addressed once and for all, we're going to have to continue with this just insidious assault on transgender people and their rights in this drip, this drip, this drip, this drip until an ultimate decision is rendered. And who knows what type of impact this is going to have on them? Because it's not like it's a one-time, one-and-done. It's something that is perpetuating this this climate of harm that's ever-present. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand percent. Oh, my goodness. But you know what? We've got somebody waiting in the wings who is going to be able to kind of talk about how we can heal. So enough about what's happening in the world. Let's get to today's guest, shall we? Let's do this. I feel like we're going to have the most meaningful conversation with our guest today. Rachel Marie Castillo is an artist, photographer and small business owner. A graduate of the University of Arizona with a focus on photography and business with artistic roots in the queer community, 
Rachel learned photography while hanging out with drag queens and drag kings. Rachel is the co-founder of Flux Studio and Gallery, a queer nonprofit art space in downtown Tucson, which operated from 2009 to 2016. She is also the co-creator of Amplifying Voices, an artist project that features interviews with Tucson activists in the Cutie Pock community. Rachel is a portrait photographer, and her work has always been about the body, identity, and gender expression. Through her work, she helps people feel confident and authentic in front of the camera. She believes each photo session is the chance to offer a safe space to be vulnerable and to feel seen. Everyone, please join me in welcoming the talented Rachel Castillo to the show. Welcome to the show, Rachel, and thank you for joining us today. I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. So, Rachel, we're just going to get right into it. You founded Flux Studio and Gallery in 2009, which was the first and only LGBTQ plus community cultural arts organization in the Southwest. What drove you to start this organization? You know, when you say it like that, it's really meaningful. And when you are starting something, of course, it's meaningful. And I remember I'm like, my friends and I, we were just, I feel like kids in college and we were like, let's do this thing. <laughs> um, so hanging out with my friends, which is also part of my coming out story. Um, uh, my best friend, Dante, who managed Boys R Us, a gender performance troupe or drag kings. Uh, we like to say drag kings, queens and everything in between. Um, and that was really fun um, when I was in college, kind of, I always photographed them and there was a lot of practice um, in and performing in bars since we were kind of hopping around just from space to space creating our own events in other people's spaces. And these spaces weren't always, um, they were, didn't always feel safe. You know, they're like, you know, I love them. It's Hotel Congress, 191 Tool, um, The Surly Wench, uh, which are great spaces and, and they're not queer spaces. Um, so little by little, we've just like had more gatherings, whether it was performances or art shows or dance parties, um, spoken word, whatever we were doing in general, we were like, let's just get a space. And so um, when I say we were kids, it's like we had no, we didn't have like a real solid plan. <laughs> you know, we were just like um, artists kind of coming together and a lot of volunteerism so that we can have a space that where we can gather and feel safe. And that was really the bottom line was where can we gather and feel safe enough? Um, and so then we created Flux and that was amazing. That was a great experience. Um, so many people came into the doors and it was really felt transformative for the first time ever, a space where we could be who we were. The moment we walked through the door, we were just like, it didn't matter, you know, it all mattered. And you felt safe in your expression, in your clothing, in um, the people that were there. So that's really what kind of drove us um, was the desire to feel safe and to gather with our people. Yeah. So relatable, so relatable. It's it's whenever you have marginalized groups, those opportunities to come together in mm -hmm. places and spaces where you don't have to look over your shoulder and wonder if that gaze is a hateful gaze or mm -hmm. a discerning gaze, or is that just, hey, <laughs> I mm -hmm. like the way you look. It's, it's, you don't have to worry about being othered and having to defend yourself or justify why you're in a space. Like if I come someplace and I'm spending my money, I'm someplace, someplace to spend my money. If I'm coming someplace and I'm a patron of your establishment, I'm a patron of your establishment. If I'm just browsing, 
I'm just browsing, but my presence here should not be one where I start to feel some kind of way. And it's really just, it's inspiring that you were able to, with your friends, realize that at such a young age and create something that would allow you to have community that was so successful for so long. Mm -hmm. I always like to share this story about Tucson because I know Rachel and I are both born and raised here. And I think what people don't realize about Tucson is that we were one of the very first cities in the early 80s to have a non-discrim. So this became a safe haven. While it wasn't necessarily safe if you moved out of Tucson metro area, housing, work, public accommodations were protected. And public accommodations for transgender people was added to that non-discrim in 98 when Stephen will often ask, like, how are you around? Like, you have, like, a vast community. And I'm like, it's I didn't create it. Like, this was happenstance because policy is personal. And it just so happened that policy allowed for people to come here. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really important about the work that you do and what I've heard so often from our peers or from Marcel and, like, the younger generation is how you were capturing like these moments in photograph, like a historical kind of capture of like queer joy, like for like the at least the last two decades, if not more, right? Mm -hmm. And so it kind of leads into this other question that I have for you. The running theme in so much of your work is making visible those who are often left out, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be LGBTQI people, queer, trans people of color, mothers who are always taking photos and not wanting to be in front of the mm -hmm. camera. What is the role of art in creating visibility? Mm -hmm. Do you see artwork as a form of activism? Oh yeah, absolutely. 100%, especially anything having to do with the body because the body is political. Every time we want to express ourselves, that is political and express ourselves and come into connection or interaction with other people. Um, and it also it really did all start with um, my drag buddies <laughs> because they're performing with their bodies. Um, they're up there on stage performing their gender and their expression and their joy and their sorrows. Um, and it's completely political. And um, you know, art is also this other kind of literally a visual history um, that's a reflection of how artists are responding to the times, both. Um, their personal lives and, and the political climate around them. So it's all a reflection. You know, when we look through time, we're like, okay, what was happening with this artist? Why did they make this? Well, what was happening in the world at that time? So, you know, we have history books and then we also have art <laughs> so that we can interpret either. So I think art is definitely positioned in activism, um, especially if we're trying to say something or uh, express our meaning or, or, or like connect with people through our joys or our sorrows. Um, Cause sometimes we share them. Our sorrows sometimes is what brings us together. Especially as you mentioned, policy is personal. It's, it is absolutely. Um, so I think like when I thought, you know I didn't go out to like photograph the people that are on the margins or being left out. That's just like who I'm drawn to. Um, there's this quote, it's, uh, you know, when we allow our light, our own personal light to shine, we unconsciously let other people shine. And so, you know, being a mom, being occupying a fat body um, and all of the politics that go around uh, mm -hmm. fatness yeah. and sexuality or being seen as desirable, 
um, that also reflected um, the work that my friends were doing on stage around their own bodies and being desirable and what that means on a larger scale. Um, so I saw that reflected in kind of like my own self and then some core memories like with my mom um, as, a, as a young adolescent, you know, before I even knew to be self-conscious about my body, <laughs> I could I could hear my mom also struggling with her own self-image around occupying a fat body. And so those are the things that led me to like, oh, one, I was missing photos of my mom or I was missing, hide, can feel myself hiding myself from the camera. And then I could see my friends fighting with their lives to be on stage to talk about these things. And I'm like, oh, let's just open this up. Some people are fighting and some people are hiding and... The theme is has always really been about the body and our relationship to it, um, whether that's shame, um, sometimes hatred, um, a lot of love and joy, though, you know, because it's a self-love journey, <laughs> all the ups and downs. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> no, it does. And I think like, you know, I often talk about this it's, it's great. I'm glad that you framed it the way you did that really the work is about the body and everything that comprises that. Because when I, when I speak about what anti-trans legislation is, right? Like really it's about reducing people to their body parts because then you mm -hmm. can't see a whole human being, right? So you can pass policy that harms them. You can mm -hmm. hurt them through violence, all the vitriol that happens. And the same thing happened with, you know, LGB people, right? Where it was a discussion around how people love with their bodies, how mm -hmm. people use their bodies. And, and then for, you know, when we're talking about racism, it's the same thing, right? Like, all these conversations around body and what body looks like or what people look like or their skin color and whether they should have access to public spaces. And so it's interesting that you've brought it back to the core because I think that that's the definitive way bias is formed and utilizing your artwork to like strip that away and to like celebrate body or to bring awareness around body, I think is really powerful. So I appreciate you did answer it. And I was thinking visibility, but you're like, I think what you said was what the way you see your artwork is actually more profound than that, right? And I'm gonna sit with it for a minute because I think it's great. I think it's beautiful. Thank you. You know, um, I just wanna add, I think there's also this personal aspect of like, um, or personal activism and how we can change our relationship to our own self image. That is what I really want to offer somebody on a personal level is a chance to, to be vulnerable, to like be who they are, express something with in, within their many facets of themselves. Um, and then they can like see that reflected back. And I think that is a small ripple effect. Every time we see an image that we like of ourselves that affirms who we are, and we like that, um, especially if we're in the face of um, adversary in any way, and we're like, you know what, yes, I'm badass. I am that bitch right there, yes. Or, oh my God, I've never seen myself. Oh my God, I'm so beautiful. Um, and then you can go back to that. And it's like this ripple effect that how we see ourselves, how we show up for ourselves, how we show up in community and for the people around us. And it gives us some that little bit of resiliency sometimes that we need, especially when there's a hard day for whatever reason. Um, so there's that little personal part that I'm also trying to affect people um, to feel good about themselves. Absolutely. It's funny because a lot of what you've been talking about is couched in enjoy in connection 
in community. And, and much of your artwork really highlighted images of LGBTQIA joy and connection and community. So I'm really curious because you've used this this concept a lot of, of, of community, of the people that were around you and you were around in the very early days. What does community mean to you? And, and what lessons were learned through your earlier artwork and community organizing through Flux that you find to still resonate today? Oh, that's a good question. Community. Um, right off the bat, community is going to be like, for me, people that we share some values and we care about the same issues right off the bat. Um, they're going to be people who I can vibe with, <laughs> that I'm going to go to some events and literally see their faces. So they're going to be present in body. Um, maybe they'll be neighbors. But really, when I think about it, like we cannot, we're not built to survive alone. We are like meant to survive in community in these like small villages where we align in vibration in whatever that means. Um, we need each other. Absolutely. And so, you know, I have some friends that are like on one hand, they're preppers, but they have this one friend that is really inspiring. And they're like, you know what, instead of prepping, I'm going to go and make relationships with my neighbors. And I'm like, oh, yes. Like door knock, like know what who your neighbor is, you know, instead of like that we're an island and I need to like self get everything I need to be self-sufficient instead. Let's just know each other. And then when we need each other, we're going to come, come through. Um, I think community is like the people that I vibe with that I just want to help. Like, I just want to help them. And I don't, and it's maybe it's because we're in close proximity or those shared values or the shared issues. Um, uh, but other things that I learned <laughs> at Flux through community organizing is not for the faint of heart, which is why I admire you, Lizette. So I have just like, <laughs> my heart is like with you all the time. And just, it is not for the faint of heart. Anytime you are making space for people or you're advocating for people, you are on the front lines and you are getting it with them and you're going to be held accountable and you're going to just be stretched. Um, so what I learned is to really have integrity, to, to, believe in something, to stand by that, to know when you're wrong, to want to learn better and then show up and do better uh, because people are watching too and they're counting on you. Whenever you're an organizer of if anything, people are learn to count on you. Um, so that is, so it's not for the faint of heart <laughs> is what I learned. Um, and that I am continuously drawn to community activism in some sort of way. I think sometimes we, um, it's natural, normal that uh, when we have space in our life, we we go towards those things and we are those building blocks or set the foundation. Um, and then sometimes we take a step back and our activism might look like something else like art making or another step might be like resource sharing or something. Um, but I feel always called back to it. My heart is always with the people, <laughs> my people. Um, and there's a lot, I think, you can see it in your own child. I mean, they're doing a lot of mutual aid work and like, you know, the warehouse tends to be a space where everyone's in meetings and organizing in their own silos. So it's kind of fun. Um, but I agree with you. Community is a space. It, it fluctuates it, but it's necessary in such a way that like, yeah, I admire you too. Um, and I think the thing that I admire most about you uh, is that you lead with love and nothing ever seems to bother you. 
you seem to have like the, like you have this level of bravery and I say bravery because to love first, mm -hmm. to like look at the silver lining first is really brave because most people want to protect, they want to put a wall up. Um, tell us about how, like what drew you to like some of the projects you have around like having mom in the picture, kinky sheets, Tucson headshots, like all these things that are celebrating the body, celebrating empowerment. And tell us where that inspiration comes from and how do you stay in that like love space? <laughs> Thanks for seeing that. Um, I like to joke that I'm a combination of Pisces <laughs> and a number seven on the anagram scale. So <laughs> I am <laughs> blessed with the glasses half full mentality. <laughs> it's a blessing. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see. I just don't know any other way, really of how to be. Um, I, and I really do love people. I love to like, um, get to know somebody. I love that vulnerable space with somebody. You know what? Um, I really, I really love sex. <laughs> I love sensuality. I love people expressing themselves through their body. And then cr I think creativity moves through like this root chakra in the middle of our body here. Um, and so I really do get excited for people to be like, yes, I'm sexy, I'm creative. Um, so I would say that when I'm doing making art, <laughs> I think that there's always going to be a thread of the sexual part of the body, um, because I think that's like where creativity is kind of coming from in general. Um, so that's like where Kinky Sheet comes from, Kinky Sheets. Also, in part of my projects, um, I helped to organize this uh, conference called Southwest Love Fest, and it's a annual conference on relationships and identity um, and ethical non-monogamous relationships, um, but really emphasizing on identity um, and how we relate to each other in relationships and to ourselves. And in that, again, is this thread of um, sensuality. And so I think that's the playoff of kinky sheets um, and people coming together for relationships uh, and for themselves. Um, other projects like um, my most recent Tucson Headshot, that's really what I'm working on now. And um, that's where I help small business owners. Primarily women who are over 45 is who I identify the most with. That's me. <laughs> I'm not over 45 quite yet. <laughs> I just turned 41. But um, I feel like that's like, I know my mom's older now, but that is who is probably ingrained in when I was a young person and my mom it was where I started to recognize my mom's suffering um, or where those messages around the body started to get ingrained or turned on it, you know, almost like, Oh, the, that struggle with um, body image and occupying a fat body and desirability. And so I think that my mom is probably in her forties. So that's probably why I'm just like, <laughs> Now that I'm talking about, oh man, this turned into a therapy session. <laughs> um, so I love actually helping I, primarily women over 45, making their portraits, helping them look good, feel good, and make an image of themselves that's going to resonate. Um, and I love working with business owners because to me, it's like drag all over again. <laughs> it's just work drag. You know, everything that we do in life, we put on a costume. Um, whether that's armor or a costume or an outfit or a uniform so that we can go and perform something in the world for other people. And work is just like that. <laughs> you know, we go to work and we put on our work garb, we come home, we put on our house clothes. Um, and so uh, working with business owners lets me bring in all the facets of like um, 
my art making skills and storytelling and just play in general. And even though their costumes don't look as fun as drag kings and drag queens, <laughs> they're still costumes. Um, so that's actually why I really love that, what I'm doing now. Um, although it's so different from where I started, um, to me, I really see the threads in there. Um, and again, it's still about the body and identity and the identity that people are trying to put forward for their businesses and who they're trying to attract, people like themselves. Um, and it's always, again, going, going to be about the body. How do I look? How do I feel? Whether it's for a personal portrait or a business portrait, people want to feel good in their body. They want to look good in their body. And so that's, that's always where I want to help. <laughs> mm -hmm. Nice. So I have a question for you. During your intro, you kind of identified yourself as a member of the LGBTQIA community. Um, I think you said you were queer or mm -hmm. something along those lines. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but growing up as a, as a queer youth and raising someone as a child mm -hmm. who identifies as LGBTQIA, what kind of support do you think parents of these, I'm going to ask this all over again. <laughs> During our intro, you identified as queer. You mm -hmm. self-identified as queer. And you're also the parent of a child who identifies as LGBTQIA. Mm -hmm. And that's, in this particular moment, a challenge to raise a member of this community. What kind of support do you think parents of youth who identify as LGBTQIA plus should provide to their to their kids? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll say that the biggest challenge of uh, parenting someone that's also part of the queer community is policy. Other people's problems is the biggest challenge. Nothing with what Marcel wants for himself and his own body is a problem. None of that is a problem. Uh, the challenges come from outside um, where people are saying no, or there's harm or danger. That's the biggest challenge is danger. Um, when he came out to me, I was just so afraid for him, just for just fear for his body. Um, he, yeah. So um, let's see what I do. I think that parents should do to support their kids. Listen to them, <laughs> just listen to them. Um, you know, I didn't come, I came out when I was 21 and I just, even before that, I just thought I should just be honest with this person, this little human. I had him when I was young, I was 16. So I was also just figuring it out. So I like to say we grew up together. Um, in that blessing was that I thought it was better to just be who I was than to pretend. I didn't even have enough life experience to know that parents should pretend to be something different. <laughs> so Marcel, good or bad, got to see all of my growing up, literally growing up. Um, and when I came out, I thought, you know what, this is who I am. And I, and I just always believed and told him that powerful things could happen when you're vulnerable, when you let yourself be vulnerable. So I let myself be vulnerable with him and just let him see who I was and what I was about. And that included um, when I started dating or when I would, when I would bring him to Boys R Us practice and he could see all the people, you know, practicing their gender expression. And so he was, um, exposed to a lot of things that were just part of my life. 
um, without trying to say that they're good or bad. Just let him kind of decide. Um, so I think that that piece of support was just me being honest with who I am so that he can feel supported being who he is, whoever that is. Um, so if I can be vulnerable, then that sh could show him that he can be vulnerable. Um, and then when he came out, I just listened without trying to make my own story. Um, also, the, the biggest thing that probably helped me was actually Lizette's parent group. <laughs> that was a huge, huge help in this moment where, um, you know, I was afraid and I didn't know why. You know, I didn't have any words for it. I was just afraid of change. My whole community, all of my friends, I had so many friends and lovers and close people that were part of the trans community that are trans. And yet here I am afraid for my own child and I'm like, Oh, well, because I'm afraid for his safety, not because he's going to make a wrong decision and do something to his body that's irreversible. None of that, because I knew just from the experience with my friends that that's not the issue. Um, doing something and then regretting it later, that's not the issue. Um, so I went to the support group. <laughs> that was transformative for me. It got, it let me like listen to other people's stories and like really put the name to things that were uh, heart heavy on my heart, like, um, you know, just grieving change, grieving that expectation that you had, this fantasy that you have for your child, like, we're going to go to art museums because they're going to like art. They're, we're going to do this because they're, and like putting all these fantasies on my kids. So processing that really was a game changer. Um, and, and just hearing grief from other people um, was, it was helpful. Um, and then now just listening without trying to solve any problems, um, which is probably in general helpful for all parents, <laughs> um, you know, not trying to just, just listening and knowing that, um, his struggles are real, like around getting testosterone or navigating the healthcare system. That shit is real. And he's not exaggerating because I've known it from so much experience with my friends navigating the same system. Um, and if I wasn't motivated before to be part of the community or to vote, for example, um, then I'm super motivated. I'm just like in it more and more um, because of my kid. So I don't know, did that answer your question? No, it totally answered my question. And it's funny because Lisa and I, you know, we, when we talk about when our children first came out to us, like that, that visceral fear that you have about the rest of their life the trajectory for the rest of their life because it's so opposite to this fantasy you've already structured for them the minute you saw their little genitals you know when they got here you're like you're gonna be a girl you're gonna wear dresses you're gonna be a boy you're gonna play baseball you're gonna do all these things that we predetermined because we're parents and we've already walked this walk so we know what's in store for you and we had to jettison all of that and do exactly what you said. Listen to them and take our cues from them. And certain people will hear that and be like, you can't like a chill decide life altering. Nobody's saying that. We're saying, listen. You have two ears and one mouth for a reason because you should listen twice as much as you speak. And when our children are talking, we should be listening. Our children should be listened to. It doesn't mean that everything they say is going to necessarily be the thing we just fall in line and do. But for the most part, we're going to listen to them and we're going to help them to achieve whatever it is that they want for them. That is safe. Absolutely. That is age appropriate. 
that is within our power to help them achieve. And sometimes even if it's not, we'll move heaven and earth to make sure that they're safe, happy, well-adjusted and seen. So I think that's really important. That's really good advice because a lot of people just don't understand it, especially people who don't have children who identify as anything other than cisgender. And even they need to be listening to their children, even if they are cisgender, because children, they're speaking and they're expressing themselves to you for a reason. And to not listen to them, I think you're doing your children a disservice. No, I think also too, it's really important in what you just shared is that so often the right those that are trying to pass policy say that like LGBTQIA people are indoctrinating youth. And you're explaining a different experience in that you too had questions, you too had fears, some probably based in your own lived experience of having to navigate bias and your own fear and safeties around your own body when you were in spaces that were not affirming. I think too, Marcel is going to be like, why were y'all talking about me on this podcast? Jose and I learned so much from Marcel in the sense that Daniel is a fair-skinned, very binary, masculine person. Like he's gained privilege through the patriarchy, right? And Marcel is a Mexican, black, trans person that will wear makeup and have facial hair and is is like wandering the world with expression that does not fit in the binary. Marcel uh, teases us that we have a scary movie squad because like if a scary movie comes out, I'm like, let's go watch the Thursday night 1030 showing and Marcel will come with us. And we do think a lot about his safety going home. Like what does safety look like when we are, when we bring him out with us late at night? Like, you know, like we have those conversations and he's an adult. He's going to be like, y'all are crazy. But like Jose and I are always like, you know, like I think their light, their headlight was out and Jose and I were like, you got to get that fixed. Like, what do you need? How do we get that fixed? Cause we don't want you to get pulled over. Like there's all these things that you think about when you are in community with people and you, you have to be thoughtful and sometimes we fail, right, as a, as adults in their sphere. Sometimes we fail on, like, what that safety and what those needs are. And when you talk about navigating the medical system, it is so hard to navigate that as a youth, as a young adult, as an older person, and advocating for yourself as a BIPOC person in, in those spaces is really hard. And mm-hmm. so I'm always so deeply impressed by them. And, I mean, I know you are, too. And I think too, what's really interesting about their story, and I don't, I don't want to speak for them, but like, you know, when we met them, they were coming, they needed to leave their job so that they could transition, mm-hmm. right? Like they were not safe in their employment. And mm-hmm. that's a reality for a lot of trans people. And until you're hearing those stories from those people, you, you don't, you don't realize that we need to do more as allies, right? When you start seeing the realities of just employment, mm-hmm. um, and how, like, we're not doing enough to mm-hmm. make this world more safe and inclusive for trans people. So I hope they don't kill me. I'm going to have to go to work and be like, sorry, we talked about you for like 15 minutes. <laughs> but I think they were like, oh, you're going to have my mom on. So no, it might just be part of the package. Um, this other thought I wanted to say was that, you know, our kids are going to grow up sooner than later. And these relationships, the relationship power dynamic is going to switch real fast between them needing you to it being a voluntary relationship. My goal is for my kid to want to hang out with me. And that's only going to happen if I respect him and treat him the way he wants to be treated. Not like he is my child, but that he is a person that the universe paired us up with. 
Um, so that's how I go about my parenting. And that's how I wanted to treat um, anything around his coming out, anything around um, navigating his trans experience. It's like, how am I going to support him like I would a voluntary relationship that's a, aka a friend? So that's the other thing that I always have in the back of my head as I navigate as a parent, that this is voluntary, especially now that he's about to be 25. It is certainly, he does not have to come around. He doesn't have to, you know, so, so if I could be the one person in the world that just supports him, that just gives him a hug when it's a hard day because the world is hard. So that's the other thing I want to do as the parent is just be the one person that is just supportive. Even if I, you know, all through all that, I don't understand or I'm scared. Mm -hmm. So the, the world is not only hard, it's also very political. It's extremely political. This this particular time we find ourselves in is super political. And I noticed that part of your work is also political. So how do you use the political elements of your work to change hearts and minds? Um, That's a great question. I think... First, it starts really on an individual basis, how I can affect that one person that I'm with, that I'm holding space and creating space for, because um, I really do think that that ripple effect of um, self-love, self-worth is, um, it, it, that'll go deep and it'll last long. Um, and then that ripple effect, they're going to take their message. So I, I make artwork, um, what I like to think of as commissioned artwork. So somebody will ask me for something and I will make them a thing. Um, versus when I was young, I would like make something and hope people like it, <laughs> um, which was harder on my ego. <laughs> um, uh, so I think that they, my clients, the ones that are, let's see, some of my clients will take the work that we make together and then they'll make an impact in the world. So by choosing the people I get to work with, making sure I resonate with their message is the other way I can do it. Um, so I know that it's not completely, that's not like deeply political, but I think if I can help with somebody's self-image and also help work on projects that I'm aligned with, that can help put that, that out into the world. So projects that I align with. So when I um, volunteer my time, talent, or treasure to my favorite nonprofits. I was saying, I disagree that your work isn't political. The personal is political because it is saying, I choose to do this thing when other people would say, you know, why are you doing that thing? And that, that's that's really important, especially as, as a queer person, as a person who, who chooses to work with this community, with a person who identifies as BIPOC. There's so many elements that you probably think there's, there's no political part to this whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But those choices that you're making, those clients that you're taking on, those photographs or those images that you're ultimately capturing and putting out into the world, you could choose not to do that. You could choose to work with cisgender white men only. Mm. You don't. You choose to work with a diverse group of people and you choose to capture stuff that for the most part, your vanilla consumer isn't interested in. And so the work that you do and the people that you work with, whether it's for one commission work or working with a, a not-for-profit organization, I think is highly political because of your subject matter, because of how you choose to work, because of what you choose to capture, which isn't something that you see in your kind of everyday coming and going. So I just challenge you and push back on that, that it is, even though I asked the question and you gave your answer, <laughs> I'm going to disagree with your answer. 
<laughs> We're going to have to bring you and Dante on so that y'all can talk about also too, like Southwest Love Fest, because I mean, that is, there's, there, you, there are elements of parenting in that, um, like how to create, you know, ethical non-monogamy while parenting, like, oh, you yeah. know, all these children. And I think too, like, you know, for Daniel, Dante is like seeing Dante just like at different events, like Dante is a reflection. Not, not only is it powerful, I think to see yourself reflected in a way that is meaningful to yourself, but to see other people like you reflected back. And I think that's why your work has been, it resonates. Like literally everyone I speak to is like, Rachel is like a Tucson gem. She's uh, photographed like and and ha- created an archive of our of our world here in Tucson and like and that's all I hear from people right is like that you are this like OG activist who was capturing so many moments uh, mm-hmm. for people and so I think that uh, we'll have to have you and Dante on because I think the two of you together would be great. Tell us your coming out story. Oh, my coming out story. Um, Okay, so, (laughs) you know, I probably, I mean, well, I have always been queer. um, And so I have small memories. (laughs) Let's see. But I came out when I was, really when I was 20, 21-ish. And um, Marcel was four. So I had already had Marcel. And um, I was living with his dad <laughs> and that was not working. <laughs> um, this was like after high school, after high school, um, I graduated, I moved to New York where Marcel's dad lived. We lived together for a couple months. And then I was like, this is not working. Um, I started a job and I had just met somebody, my first girlfriend. <laughs> and then, but I, and I instantly knew I was like, oh, Oh, I'm so gay. <laughs> I'm so gay. Um, it also helped that growing up, my father was gay. Um, and so already had the idea of what it was, that it was okay. My mom was had always accepted him in the family and his partners. Um, and so it was an acceptable thing. Um, or that at least it was it, somebody in my family had precedent in me. So it was easier. Um, and so, you know, I didn't fight it. I was just like, oh, yeah, this is me. This is okay. Um, so it kind of was an easy coming out. It was not, it wasn't, it felt like easy-ish, just mostly because I had already had my father, you know, and my mom was a hairdresser. So I think a lot of her friends were also in the queer community. Well, he's gay <laughs> in the gay community. Um, so I felt like it was just part of life. Um, although, but when my mom, when I told my mom, she, I think it was just like this natural reaction of being disappointed that your purse, your kid is not going to be what you expected, <laughs> you know, because I had already had a kid. So she probably thought I was going to get married to a guy and then have more babies or something, whatever her fantasy was. Um, so there was an element of disappointment and I was slightly bothered by it, but not for long. I was like, she'll get over it. And she just will. And I knew she would. Cause that's how my mom is, you know, she's just a Mexican. It's so mom. interesting. I know. It's so interesting that you talk about that. Cause it's something I actually want to disrupt, like as an advocate, like this notion of like that it's the natural reaction. And I only say this in that because Steven hears me talk about this all the time in that, you know, if we lived in a world in which it was okay, we would, we would prepare ourselves for all the facets in which our children can be. 
right? Like the conversation would look different. And so like, I think like, you know, this is where I just adore you in that you're like, it bothered me for a second. And then I shook it off and moved on. Right? Like, you're like, it's fine. We're gonna move on. And I and I also think if we lived in a world where we knew where we didn't have to fear for the safety and well being of our children, where we knew that policy protected them, where we knew that um, their bodies would not be criminalized, harmed, you know, mm-hmm. all these things, our viewpoint would that shift, right? And and so like I think about that, like I think about my own, you know, my cousins who came out, and my mom says this, like each one of her siblings, except for the one who didn't have children, had one gay child, or you know, and in my mom's case, there's two. Um, where one is, you know, my sister, she's a lesbian, I'm bi, like, uh, and, and so like, what does that look like and why? And so like, but, but even though they had these conversations and, and people were in our family, right? Like you had like the lesbian Thea who just had a lot of friends, but wasn't out, um, you know, and I will tell you that some of my cousins were still never accepted, right? Because the conversation was, life is harder or we don't talk about it. Um, And so like, it's interesting to see that if you talk about our family histories and the ways in which we, we had community, we had queer people vicinity and yet, right. And so I think I just think about what will, what can it look like later? Mm -hmm. Right. Like what can we add? And I think these conversations add to it. I think I appreciate you sharing your story because I I do think that your mother loved you deeply and probably was like, I want, I don't want life to be hard and it shouldn't be, you know? And so how do we talk about that, that the, the fears and frame them in the ways in which they truly come to us, right? Like I often tell parents, it's not your, it's not your child's identity, right? But the world. And so it's just, it's, it just sits with me all the time. And I'm always thinking like, how do we fix, like, how do we change that? How do we reconnect and, you know, and like rewire the way that we see that part of the journey when it Mm -hmm. comes to parents and how we love our children? Which is why I think visibility is so important <laughs> because we need more in, it's like a long game. You know, we need more books, more s- stories, more movies, more people that are visible to show successful, happy people, successful, happy lives and all the varieties of what that looks like um, to like come combat that as well. Like, so if our people could see more stories and then it's more normalized um, or more stories of hope. Um, then maybe that can chip away at some of the fear. Um, some of it is just being exposed, you know? <clears throat> um, but I will have to say that my mom is, she's the one, you know, she's the one that like, if she hadn't accepted my dad, then I would never have known that this is okay. And if she, if then I had this, I knew that uh, no matter what I did, that she would love me, you know? So she, Parents are the core for us to be able to express who we are safely and healthy in a healthy time frame, whatever that might look like, you know, as we age. Yeah. Um, but if I was going to be, if I was afraid of her or afraid of her rejection or afraid of being thrown out, then I would not have come out 
And I would just be in yeah. hiding until I could support myself or something. Um, so if it wasn't for my mom, <laughs> that she's the game changer, you know? So parents are, that how we support our children are super important because then it trickled down yeah. to myself. That was going to be my question to you. How do you think your mother's acceptance of your father and then you informed your acceptance of your child? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just like that thread is, is just solid right there. Um, seeing my mom accept my something so hard, you know, like this relationship with my dad, it, it questioned her own identity, her own self-worth, her own sense of desirability to have her partner come out as gay. Um, and then for her to, to bring him into our family and his lovers. And, and I was just like, that blows my mind to see that kind of love and acceptance. That's what I think community is that even though it is hard for you to process, to know that each person deserves their own, you know, and that we're still a family. Um, and so, yes, I think that has, uh, affected my whole, the, the way I see all the things, um, how I lead with love is probably from example. Um, and yeah, and it has actually helped me help my mom to come, um, coming to terms with Marcel's transition. Cause I think my mom is, has a lot of deep fears and doesn't understand. And, and I think accepting, um, and, and then I could realize that some of her accepting is also tolerating. <laughs> so there's this fine line of understanding. Um, but, you know, being gay is one thing, being trans is another. And so that these levels of understanding, especially for generations, you know, she's a boomer. So um, <laughs> like <laughs> we're dealing with just different ideology. Um, so in turn, I get to help my mom accept Marcel and understand and go down that journey. Oh, yeah. Where can people book a session, find you online, all the good things. Um, I am on all the platforms. Just kidding. Um, so my website is rachelmarie.photography. And that's where you'll see um, a lot of my kind of women's portraiture. Um, in my blog is where you'll see kind of my fun um, projects um, with community members. And then you can see my business photography at tucsonheadshot.com. And I'm on Instagram and Facebook as well under the same names. Thank you so much for everything, for this conversation. I knew it was going to be thoughtful and I knew it was going to be meaningful and that you were going to bring like all the feels. Like I have to share this with you, Stephen. I was like in the middle of a speech at like a campaign event and Rachel walked in and I was like, I'm so happy to see so many people I love because like I just see your face and you're always so happy to see everyone. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yay, Rachel's here. We're going to have a drink and we're going to have fun. Um <laughs> But yeah, like you light up a room for everyone. Everyone loves and adores you. And I'm just glad. I know that people who listen to this episode are going to feel that too. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is really special. Thank you for joining us. Um, and we're going to have to have you and Dante on together at some point in the future. So look out for that. Calendar. All right, I'm warning you. He's a talker, so you better double up on your time. No worries. <laughs> no worries. We'll, we'll block it. We'll block the time. And remember, <laughs> the magic happens in editing, so don't even worry about that. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Um, I hope you both have lovely days. You Thank you. Yeah. All right. And then I will see you around. Bye. Yes, yes, for sure. Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? 
Our ally of the week is Dee Smith. Dee Smith is the director of Kokomo City, a documentary about the lives of five Black transgender sex workers in New York and Atlanta. The film highlights the dangers the women often face, the men who are secretly attracted to and patronizing them, and the challenges they face as sex workers trying to make lives for themselves. One of the film's primary voices, Coco Dadal, was tragically cut short shortly after the film's premiere at Sundance Film Festival, which punctuates the main theme of the film. And we really have to give it up to Dee Smith, who persevered after being blackballed in the music video industry after her transition for making such a powerful film and creating space for the stories of even more marginalized members of the trans community to be heard. And this is why Dee Smith is our ally of the week. Congratulations to Dee Smith. Now, on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week has to go to Spanish football president Luis Rubiales. The president of the Royal Spanish Football Club, Luis Rubiales, was forced to apologize after he kissed player Jenny Hermosa on the lips after Spain won the 2023 Women's World Cup. Now, in many cultures, it's perfectly appropriate to kiss an individual, man or woman, on the cheek as a greeting, a sign of affection, or a form of congratulations, which Rubiales did for all the other players. But for some reason, he felt compelled to kiss Jenny Hermoso on the mouth, completely against her will. I mean, that's just foul and gross. And so consent first, people, consent first. And this is why Luis Rubiales is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guests, Rachel Castillo, for spending time with us today. And of course, I'd like to thank my right hand, Luzette Trujillo, for rocking with me on these airwaves. Steven, you know I got you. I love doing this every week. And thank you to Rachel. And also, thank you, our listeners. We couldn't do this without you. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And as usual, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things to stay up to date with everything we're doing here on the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye. Bye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.